Chapter Ten, Part One of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter Ten, Part One. A chapter of digression and anecdotes, as an interlude preceding that on the nature and genesis of the imagination or plastic power, on pedantry and pedantic expressions advice to young authors respecting publication various anecdotes of the author's literary life and the progress of his opinions in religion and politics esemplastic the word is not in johnson nor have i met with it elsewhere neither have i i constructed it myself from the greek words eis en platein to shape into one because having to convey a new sense i thought that a new term would both aid the recollection of my meaning and prevent its being confounded with the usual import of the word imagination but this is pedantry not necessarily so i hope if i am not misinformed pedantry consists in the use of words unsuitable to the time place and company the language of the market would be in the schools as pedantic though it might not be reprobated by that name as the language of the schools in the market the mere man of the world who insists that no other terms but such as occur in common conversation should be employed in a scientific disquisition and with no greater precision is as truly a pedant as the man of letters who either overrating the acquirements of his auditors or misled by his own familiarity with technical or scholastic terms converses at the wine-table with his mind fixed on his museum or laboratory even though the latter pedant instead of desiring his wife to make the tea should bid her add to the quant suff of thea sinensis the oxide of hydrogen saturated with caloric to use the colloquial and in truth somewhat vulgar metaphor if the pedant of the cloister and the pedant of the lobby both smell equally of the shop yet the odour from the russian binding of good old authentic-looking folios and quartos is less annoying than the steams from the tavern or bagno nay though the pedantry of the scholar should betray a little ostentation yet a well-conditioned mind would more easily methinks tolerate the fox-brush of learned vanity than the sans of a contemptuous ignorance that assumes a merit from mutilation in the self-consoling sneer at the pompous encumbrance of tales the first lesson of philosophic discipline is to wean the student's attention from the degrees of things which alone form the vocabulary of common life and to direct it to the kind abstracted from degree thus the chemical student is taught not to be startled at disquisitions on the heat in ice or on latent and fixable light in such discourse the instructor has no other alternative than either to use old words with new meanings the plan adopted by darwin in his zoonomia or to introduce new terms after the example of linnaeus and the framers of the present chemical nomenclature the latter mode is evidently preferable were it only that the former demands a twofold exertion of thought in one and the same act for the reader or hearer is required not only to learn and bear in mind the new definition but to unlearn and keep out of his view the old and habitual meaning a far more difficult and perplexing task and for which the mere semblance of eschewing pedantry seems to me an inadequate compensation where indeed it is in our power to recall an unappropriate term that had without sufficient reason become obsolete it is doubtless a less evil to restore than to coin anew thus to express in one word all that appertains to the perception considered as passive and merely recipient i have adopted from our elder classics the word sensuous because sensual is not at present used except in a bad sense or at least as a moral distinction while sensitive and sensible would each convey a different meaning thus too have i followed hooker sanderson milton and others in designating the immediateness 
of any act or object of knowledge by the word intuition used sometimes subjectively sometimes objectively even as we use the word thought now as the thought or act of thinking and now as a thought or the object of our reflection and we do this without confusion or obscurity the very words objective and subjective of such constant recurrence in the schools of yore i have ventured to reintroduce because i could not so briefly or conveniently by any more familiar terms distinguish the percipere from the percipi lastly i have cautiously discriminated the terms the reason and the understanding encouraged and confirmed by the authority of our genuine divines and philosophers before the revolution both life and sense fancy and understanding whence the soul reason receives and reason is her being discursive or intuitive discourse is oftest yours the latter most is ours differing but in degree in kind the same i say that i was confirmed by authority so venerable for i had previous and higher motives in my own conviction of the importance nay of the necessity of the distinction as both an indispensable condition and a vital part of all sound speculation in metaphysics ethical or theological to establish this distinction was one main object of the friend if even in a biography of my own literary life i can with propriety refer to a work which was printed rather than published or so published that it had been well for the unfortunate author if it had remained in manuscript i have even at this time bitter cause for remembering that which a number of my subscribers have but a trifling motive for forgetting this effusion might have been spared but i would fain flatter myself that the reader will be less austere than an oriental professor of the bastinado who during an attempt to extort per argumentum baculinum a full confession from a culprit interrupted his outcry of pain by reminding him that it was a mere digression all this noise sir is nothing to the point and no sort of answer to my questions ah but replied the sufferer it is the most pertinent reply in nature to your blows an imprudent man of common goodness of heart cannot but wish to turn even his imprudences to the benefit of others as far as this is possible if therefore any one of the readers of this semi-narrative should be preparing or intending a periodical work i warn him in the first place against trusting in the number of names on his subscription list for he cannot be certain that the names were put down by sufficient authority or should that be ascertained it still remains to be known whether they were not extorted by some overzealous friend's importunity whether the subscriber had not yielded his name merely from want of courage to answer no and with the intention of dropping the work as soon as possible one gentleman procured me nearly a hundred names for the friend and not only took frequent opportunity to remind me of his success in his canvas but laboured to impress my mind with the sense of the obligation i was under to the subscribers for as he very pertinently admonished me fifty-two shillings a year was a large sum to be bestowed on one individual where there were so many objects of charity with strong claims to the assistance of the benevolent of these hundred patrons ninety threw up the publication before the fourth number without any notice though it was well known to them that in consequence of the distance and the slowness and irregularity of the conveyance i was compelled to lay in a stock of stamped paper for at least eight weeks beforehand each sheet of which stood me in five pence previously to its arrival at my printer's though the subscription money was not to be received till the twenty-first week after the commencement of the work and lastly though it was in nine cases out of ten impracticable for me to receive the money for two or three numbers without paying an equal sum for the postage in confirmation of my first caveat i will select one fact among many on my list of subscribers among a considerable number of names equally flattering was that of an earl of cork with his address he might as well have been an earl of bottle for aught i knew of him who had been content to reverence the peerage in abstracto rather than in concretus of course the friend was regularly sent as far if i remember right as the eighteenth number that is till a fortnight before the subscription was to be paid 
and lo just at this time i received a letter from his lordship reproving me in language far more lordly than courteous for my impudence in directing my pamphlets to him who knew nothing of me or my work seventeen or eighteen numbers of which however his lordship was pleased to retain probably for the culinary or post-culinary conveniences of his servants secondly i warn all others from the attempt to deviate from the ordinary mode of publishing a work by the trade i thought indeed that to the purchaser it was indifferent whether thirty per cent of the purchase money went to the booksellers or to the government and that the convenience of receiving the work by this post at his own door would give the preference to the latter it is hard i own to have been labouring for years in collecting and arranging the materials to have spent every shilling that could be spared after the necessaries of life had been furnished in buying books or in journeys for the purpose of consulting them or of acquiring facts at the fountain-head then to buy the paper pay for the printing and the like all at least fifteen per cent beyond what the trade would have paid and then after all to give thirty per cent not of the net profits but of the gross results of the sale to a man who is merely to give the book shelf or warehouse-room and permit his apprentice to hand them over the counter to those who may ask for them and this too copy by copy although if the work be on any philosophical or scientific subject it may be years before the edition is sold off all this i confess must seem a hardship and one to which the products of industry in no other mode of exertion are subject yet even this is better far better than to attempt in any way to unite the functions of author and publisher but the most prudent mode is to sell the copyright at least of one or more editions for the most that the trade will offer by few only can a large remuneration be expected but fifty pounds in ease of mind are of more real advantage to a literary man than the chance of five hundred with the certainty of insult and degrading anxieties i shall have been grievously misunderstood if this statement should be interpreted as written with the desire of detracting from the character of booksellers or publishers the individuals did not make the laws and customs of their trade but as in every other trade take them as they find them till the evil can be proved to be removable and without the substitution of an equal or greater inconvenience it were neither wise nor manly even to complain of it but to use it as a pretext for speaking or even for thinking or feeling unkindly or probiously of the tradesmen as individuals would be something worse than unwise or even than unmanly it would be immoral and calumnious my motives point in a far different direction and to far other objects as will be seen in the conclusion of the chapter a learned and exemplary old clergyman who many years ago went to his reward followed by the regrets and blessings of his flock published at his own expense two volumes octavo entitled a new theory of redemption the work was most severely handled in the monthly or critical review i forget which and this unprovoked hostility became the good old man's favourite topic of conversation among his friends well he used to exclaim in the second edition i shall have an opportunity of exposing both the ignorance and the malignity of the anonymous critic two or three years however passed by without any tidings from the bookseller who had undertaken the printing and publication of the work and who was perfectly at his ease as the author was known to be a man of large property at length the accounts were written for and in the course of a few weeks they were presented by the rider for the house in person my old friend put on his spectacles and holding the scroll with no very firm hand began paper so much oh moderate enough not at all beyond my expectation printing so much well moderate enough stitching covers advertisements carriage and so forth so much still nothing amiss cellarage for orthography is no necessary part of a bookseller's literary acquirement three pounds three shillings bless me only three guineas for the what do you call it the cellarage no more sir replied the rider nay but that is too moderate rejoined my old friend only three guineas for selling a thousand copies of a work in two volumes oh sir cries the young traveller you have mistaken the word there have been none of them sold they have been sent back from london long ago and this three pounds three shillings is for the cellarage or warehouse-room in our bookseller 
the work was in consequence preferred from the ominous seller of the publishers to the author's garret and on presenting a copy to an acquaintance the old gentleman used to tell the anecdote with great humour and still greater good-nature with equal lack of worldly knowledge i was a far more than equal sufferer for it at the very outset of my authorship toward the close of the first year from the time that in an inauspicious hour i left the friendly cloisters and the happy grove of quiet ever honoured jesus college cambridge i was persuaded by sundry philanthropists and antipolemists to set on foot a periodical work entitled the watchman that according to the general motto of the work all might know the truth and that the truth might make us free in order to exempt it from the stamp tax and likewise to contribute as little as possible to the supposed guilt of a war against freedom it was to be published on every eighth day thirty-two pages large octavo closely printed and price only fourpence accordingly with a flaming prospectus knowledge is power to cry the state of the political atmosphere and so forth i set off on a tour to the north from bristol to sheffield for the purpose of procuring customers preaching by the way in most of the great towns as an hireless volunteer in a blue coat and white waistcoat that not a rag of the woman of babylon might be seen on me for i was at that time and long after though a trinitarian that is ad normam platonis in philosophy yet a zealous unitarian in religion more accurately i was a silanthropist one of those who believe our lord to have been the real son of joseph and who lay the main stress on the resurrection rather than on the crucifixion oh never can i remember those days with either shame or regret for i was most sincere most disinterested my opinions were indeed in many and most important points erroneous but my heart was single wealth rank life itself then seemed cheap to me compared with the interests of what i believed to be the truth and the will of my maker i cannot even accuse myself of having been actuated by vanity for in the expansion of my enthusiasm i did not think of myself at all my campaign commenced at birmingham and my first attack was on a rigid calvinist a tallow-chandler by trade he was a tall dingy man in whom length was so predominant over breadth that he might almost have been borrowed for a foundry poker oh that face a face cat and fasten i have it before me at this moment the lank black twine-like hair pinguinitescent cut in a straight line along the black stubble of his thin gunpowder eyebrows that looked like a scorched aftermath from a last week's shaving his coat-collar behind in perfect unison both of colour and lustre with the coarse yet glib cordage which i suppose he called his hair and which with a bend inward at the nape of the neck the only approach to flexure in his whole figure slunk in behind his waistcoat while the countenance lank dark very hard and with strong perpendicular furrows gave me a dim notion of some one looking at me through a used gridiron all soot grease and iron but he was one of the thoroughbred a true lover of liberty and as i was informed had proved to the satisfaction of many that mr pitt was one of the horns of the second beast in the revelations that spake as a dragon a person to whom one of my letters of recommendation had been addressed was my introducer it was a new event in my life my first stroke in the new business i had undertaken of an author yea and of an author trading on his own account my companion after some imperfect sentences and a multitude of hums and haws abandoned the cause to his client and i commenced an harangue of half an hour to philolutheros the tallow chandler varying my notes through the whole gamut of eloquence from the ratiocinative to the declamatory and in the latter from the pathetic to the indignant i argued i described i promised i prophesied and beginning with the captivity of nations i ended with the near approach of the millennium finishing the whole with some of my own verses describing that glorious state out of the religious musings such delights as float to earth permitted visitants when in some hour of solemn jubilee the massive gates of paradise are thrown wide open and forth come in fragments wild sweet echoes of unearthly melodies and odours snatched from beds of amaranth and they that from the crystal river of life spring up on freshened wing ambrosial gale 
My taper man of lights listened with perseverant and praiseworthy patience, though, as I was afterwards told, on complaining of certain gales that were not altogether ambrosial, it was a melting day with him. And what, sir, he said, after a short pause, might the cost be? Only fourpence. Oh, how I felt the anticlimax, the abysmal bathos of that fourpence. Only fourpence, sir, each number, to be published on every eighth day. That comes to a deal of money at the end of a year. And how much did you say there was to be for the money? Thirty-two pages, sir, large octavo, closely printed. Thirty and two pages, bless me. Why, except what I does in a family way on the Sabbath, that's more than I ever read, sir, all the year round. I am as great a one as any man in Brummagen, sir, for liberty and truth and all them sort of things, but as to this, no offence I hope, sir, I must beg to be excused. So ended my first canvas. From causes that I shall presently mention, I made but one other application in person. This took place at Manchester, to a stately and opulent wholesale dealer in cottons. He took my letter of introduction, and having perused it, measured me from head to foot, and again from foot to head, and then asked if I had any bill or invoice of the thing. I presented my prospectus to him. He rapidly skimmed and hummed over the first side, and still more rapidly the second and concluding page, crushed it within his fingers and the palm of his hand, then most deliberately and significantly rubbed and smoothed one part against the other, and lastly, putting it into his pocket, turned his back on me with an overrun with these articles and so without another syllable retired into his counting-house and i can truly say to my unspeakable amusement this i have said was my second and last attempt on returning baffled from the first in which i had vainly essayed to repeat the miracle of orpheus with a brummagem patriot i dined with the tradesman who had introduced me to him after dinner he importuned me to smoke a pipe with him and two or three other illuminati of the same rank I objected both because I was engaged to spend the evening with a minister and his friends, and because I had never smoked except once or twice in my lifetime, and then it was herb tobacco mixed with Oronuku. On the assurance, however, that the tobacco was equally mild, and seeing too that it was of a yellow colour, not forgetting the lamentable difficulty I have always experienced in saying no, and in abstaining from what the people about me were doing, I took half a pipe, filling the lower half of the bowl with salt. I was soon, however, compelled to resign it, in consequence of a giddiness and distressful feeling in my eyes, which, as I had drunk but a single glass of ale, must, I knew, have been the effect of the tobacco. Soon after, deeming myself recovered, I sallied forth to my engagement, but the walk in the fresh air brought on all the symptoms again, and I had scarcely entered the minister's drawing-room and opened a small packet of letters, which he had received from Bristol for me, ere I sank back on the sofa in a sort of swoon rather than sleep. Fortunately, I had found just time enough to inform him of the confused state of my feelings, and of the occasion. For here and thus I lay, my face like a wall that is whitewashing, deathly pale, and with the cold drops of perspiration running down it from my forehead, while one after another there dropped in the different gentlemen, who had been invited to meet and spend the evening with me, to the number of from fifteen to twenty. As the poison of tobacco acts but for a short time, I at length awoke from insensibility, and looked round on the party, my eyes dazzled by the candles which had been lighted in the interim. By way of relieving my embarrassment, one of the gentlemen began the conversation with, "'Have you seen a paper to-day, Mr. Coleridge?' "'Sir,' I replied, rubbing my eyes, "'I am far from convinced that a Christian is permitted to read either newspapers or any other works of merely political and temporary interest.' This remark, so ludicrously inapposite to, or rather incongruous with, the purpose, for which I was known to have visited Birmingham, and to assist me in which they were all then met, produced an involuntary and general burst of laughter and seldom indeed have i passed so many delightful hours as i enjoyed in that room from the moment of that laugh till an early hour the next morning never perhaps in so mixed and numerous a party have i since heard conversation sustained with such animation enriched with such variety of information and enlivened with such a flow of anecdote 
both then and afterwards they all joined in dissuading me from proceeding with my scheme assured me in the most friendly and yet most flattering expressions that neither was the employment fit for me nor i fit for the employment yet if i determined on persevering in it they promised to exert themselves to the utmost to procure subscribers and insisted that i should make no more applications in person but carry on the canvas by proxy the same hospitable reception the same dissuasion and that failing the same kind exertions in my behalf i met with at manchester derby nottingham sheffield indeed at every place in which i took up my sojourn i often recall with affectionate pleasure the many respectable men who interested themselves for me a perfect stranger to them not a few of whom i can still name among my friends they will bear witness for me how opposite even then my principles were to those of jacobinism or even of democracy and can attest the strict accuracy of the statement which i have left on record in the tenth and eleventh numbers of the friend from this rememberable tour i returned with nearly a thousand names on the subscription list of the watchman yet more than half convinced that prudence dictated the abandonment of the scheme but for this very reason i persevered in it for i was at that period of my life so completely hag-ridden by the fear of being influenced by selfish motives that to know a mode of conduct to be the dictate of prudence was a sort of presumptive proof to my feelings that the contrary was the dictate of duty accordingly i commenced the work which was announced in london by long bills in letters larger than had ever been seen before and which i have been informed for i did not see them myself eclipsed the glories even of the lottery puffs but alas the publication of the very first number was delayed beyond the day announced for its appearance in the second number an essay against fast days with a most censurable application of a text from isaiah for its motto lost me near five hundred of my subscribers at one blow in the two following numbers i made enemies of all my jacobin and democratic patrons for disgusted by their infidelity and their adoption of french morals with french philosophy and perhaps thinking that charity ought to begin nearest home instead of abusing the government and the aristocrats chiefly or entirely as had been expected of me i levelled my attacks at modern patriotism and even ventured to declare my belief that whatever the motives of ministers might have been for the sedition or as it was then the fashion to call them the gagging bills yet the bills themselves would produce an effect to be desired by all the true friends of freedom as far as they should contribute to deter men from openly declaiming on subjects the principles of which they had never bottomed and from pleading to the poor and ignorant instead of pleading for them at the same time i avowed my conviction that national education and a concurring spread of the gospel were the indispensable condition of any true political melioration thus by the time the seventh number was published i had the mortification but why should i say this when in truth i cared too little for anything that concerned my worldly interests to be at all mortified about it of seeing the preceding numbers exposed in sundry old iron shops for a penny apiece at the ninth number i dropped the work but from the london publisher i could not obtain a shilling he was a and set me at defiance from other places i procured but little and after such delays as rendered that little worth nothing and i should have been inevitably thrown into jail by my bristol printer who refused to wait even for a month for a sum between eighty and ninety pounds if the money had not been paid for me by a man by no means affluent a dear friend who attached himself to me from my arrival at bristol who has continued my friend with a fidelity unconquered by time or even by my own apparent neglect a friend from whom i never received an advice that was not wise nor a remonstrance that was not gentle and affectionate conscientiously an opponent of the first revolutionary war yet with my eyes thoroughly open to the true character and impotence of the favourers of revolutionary principles in england principles which i held in abhorrence for it was part of my political creed that whoever ceased to act as an individual by making himself a member of any society not sanctioned by his government forfeited the rights of a citizen a vehement anti-ministerialist but after the invasion of switzerland a more vehement anti-gallican and still more intensely an anti-jacobin 
I retired to a cottage at Stowey, and provided for my scanty maintenance by writing verses for a London morning paper. I saw plainly that literature was not a profession by which I could expect to live, for I could not disguise from myself that, whatever my talents might or might not be in other respects, yet they were not of the sort that could enable me to become a popular writer, and that whatever my opinions might be in themselves, they were almost equidistant from all the three prominent parties, the Pittites, the Foxites, and the Democrats. Of the unsaleable nature of my writings I had an amusing memento one morning from my own servant-girl, for happening to rise at an earlier hour than usual, I observed her putting an extravagant quantity of paper into the grate in order to light the fire, and mildly checked her for her wastefulness. "'La, sir,' replied poor Nanny, "'why, it is only watchman.' I now devoted myself to poetry, and to the study of ethics and psychology, and so profound was my admiration at this time of Hartley's Essay on Man, that I gave his name to my first-born. In addition to the gentleman, my neighbour, whose garden joined on to my little orchard, and the cultivation of whose friendship had been my sole motive in choosing Stowey for my residence, I was so fortunate as to acquire, shortly after my settlement there, an invaluable blessing in the society and neighbourhood of one to whom I could look up with equal reverence, whether I regarded him as a poet, a philosopher, or a man. His conversation extended to almost all subjects, except physics and politics, with the latter he never troubled himself. Yet neither my retirement, nor my utter abstraction, from all the disputes of the day, could secure me, in those jealous times, from suspicion and obloquy, which did not stop at me, but extended to my excellent friend, whose perfect innocence was even adduced as a proof of his guilt, one of the many busy sycophants of that day. I here use the word sycophant in its original sense, as a wretch who flatters the prevailing party by informing against his neighbours, under pretence that they are exporters of prohibited figs or fancies, for the moral application of the term, it matters not which. One of these sycophantic law-mongrels, discoursing on the politics of the neighbourhood, uttered the following deep remark. As to Coleridge, there is not so much harm in him, for he is a whirlbrain that talks whatever comes uppermost. But that, he is the dark traitor. You never hear him say a syllable on the subject. Now that the hand of Providence has disciplined all Europe into sobriety as men tame wild elephants by alternate blows and caresses, now that Englishmen of all classes are restored to their old English notions and feelings, it will with difficulty be credited how great an influence was at that time possessed and exerted by the spirit of secret defamation, the too constant attendant on party zeal, during the restless interim from 1793 to the commencement of the Addington administration, or the year before the truce of Amiens, for by the latter period the minds of the partisans, exhausted by excess of stimulation and humbled by mutual disappointment, had become languid. The same causes that inclined the nation to peace disposed the individuals to reconciliation, both parties had found themselves in the wrong. The one had confessedly mistaken the moral character of the revolution, and the other had miscalculated both its moral and its physical resources. The experiment was made at the price of great, almost, we may say, of humiliating sacrifices, and wise men foresaw that it would fail, at least in its direct and ostensible object. Yet it was purchased cheaply, and realised an object of equal value, and, if possible, of still more vital importance for it brought about a national unanimity unexampled in our history since the reign of elizabeth and providence never wanting to a good work when men have done their parts soon provided a common focus in the cause of spain which made us all once more englishmen by at once gratifying and correcting the predilections of both parties the sincere reverers of the throne felt the cause of loyalty ennobled by its alliance with that of freedom while the honest zealots of the people could not but admit that freedom itself assumed a more winning form, humanised by loyalty and consecrated by religious principle. The youthful enthusiasts, who, flattered by the morning rainbow of the French Revolution, had made a boast of expatriating their hopes and fears, 
now disciplined by the succeeding storms and sobered by increase of years had been taught to prize and honour the spirit of nationality as the best safeguard of national independence and this again as the absolute prerequisite and necessary basis of popular rights if in spain too disappointment has nipped our too forward expectations yet all is not destroyed that is checked the crop was perhaps springing up too rank in the stalk to kern well and there were doubtless symptoms of the gallican blight on it if superstition and despotism have been suffered to let in their wolvish sheep to trample and eat it down even to the surface yet the roots remain alive and the second growth may prove the stronger and healthier for the temporary interruption at all events to us heaven has been just and gracious the people of england did their best and have received their rewards long may we continue to deserve it causes which it had been too generally the habit of former statesmen to regard as belonging to another world are now admitted by all ranks to have been the main agents of our success we fought from heaven the stars in their courses fought against cicero if then unanimity grounded on moral feelings has been among the least equivocal sources of our national glory that man deserves the esteem of his countrymen even as patriots who devotes his life and the utmost efforts of his intellect to the preservation and continuance of that unanimity by the disclosure and establishment of principles for by these all opinions must be ultimately tried and as the feelings of men are worthy of regard only as far as they are the representatives of their fixed opinions on the knowledge of these all unanimity not accidental and fleeting must be grounded let the scholar who doubts this assertion refer only to the speeches and writings of edmund burke at the commencement of the american war and compare them with his speeches and writings at the commencement of the french revolution he will find the principles exactly the same and the deductions the same but the practical inferences almost opposite in the one case from those drawn in the other yet in both equally legitimate and in both equally confirmed by the results whence gained he the superiority of foresight whence arose the striking difference and in most instances even the discrepancy between the grounds assigned by him and by those who voted with him on the same questions how are we to explain the notorious fact that the speeches and writings of edmund burke are more interesting at the present day than they were found at the time of their first publication while those of his illustrious confederates are either forgotten or exist only to furnish proofs that the same conclusion which one man had deduced scientifically may be brought out by another in consequence of errors that luckily chance to neutralize each other it would be unhandsome as a conjecture even were it not as it actually is false in point of fact to attribute this difference to the deficiency of talent on the part of burke's friends or of experience or of historical knowledge the satisfactory solution is that edmund burke possessed and had sedulously sharpened that eye which sees all things actions and events in relation to the laws that determine their existence and circumscribe their possibility he referred habitually to principles he was a scientific statesman and therefore a seer for every principle contains in itself the germs of a prophecy and as the prophetic power is the essential privilege of science so the fulfilment of its oracle supplies the outward and to men in general the only test of its claim to the title wearisome as burke's refinements appear to his parliamentary auditors yet the cultivated classes throughout europe have reason to be thankful that he went on refining and thought of convincing while they thought of dining our very signboard said an illustrious friend to me give evidence that there has been a titian in the world in like manner not only the debates in parliament not only our proclamations and state papers but the essays and leading paragraphs of our journals are so many remembrances of edmund burke of this the reader may easily convince himself if either by recollection or reference he will compare the opposition newspapers at the commencement and during the five or six following years of the french revolution with the sentiments and grounds of argument assumed in the same class of journals at present and for some years past 
whether the spirit of jacobinism which the writings of burke exercised from the higher and from the literary classes may not like the ghost in hamlet be heard moving and mining in the underground chambers with an activity the more dangerous because less noisy may admit of a question i have given my opinions on this point and the grounds of them in my letters to judge fletcher occasioned by his charge to the wexford grand jury and published in the courier be this as it may the evil spirit of jealousy and with it the cerberian whelps of feud and slander no longer walk their rounds in cultivated society far different were the days to which these anecdotes have carried me back the dark guesses of some zealous quidnunc met with so congenial a soil in the grave alarm of a titled dogbury of our neighbourhood that a spy was actually sent down from the government for a surveillance of myself and friend there must have been not only abundance but variety of these honourable men at the disposal of ministers for this proved a very honest fellow after three weeks truly indian perseverance in tracking us for we were commonly together during all which time seldom were we out of doors but he contrived to be within hearing and all the while utterly unsuspected how indeed could such a suspicion enter our fancies he not only rejected sir dogbury's request that he would try yet a little longer but declared to him his belief that both my friend and myself were as good subjects for what he could discover to the contrary as any in his majesty's dominions he had repeatedly hid himself he said for hours together behind a bank at the seaside our favourite seat and overheard our conversation at first he fancied that we were aware of our danger for he often heard me talk of one spy nosy which he was inclined to interpret of himself and of a remarkable feature belonging to him but he was speedily convinced that it was the name of a man who had made a book and lived long ago our talk ran most upon books and we were perpetually desiring each other to look at this and to listen to that but he could not catch a word about politics once he had joined me on the road this occurred as i was returning home alone from my friend's house which was about three miles from my own cottage and passing himself off as a traveller he had entered into conversation with me and talked of purpose in a democrat way in order to draw me out the result it appears not only convinced him that i was no friend of jacobinism but he added i had plainly made it out to be such a silly as well as wicked thing that he felt ashamed though he had only put it on i distinctly remembered the occurrence and had mentioned it immediately on my return repeating what the traveller with his bardolph nose had said with my own answer and so little did i suspect the true object of my tempter er accuser that i expressed with no small pleasure my hope and belief that the conversation had been of some service to the poor misled malcontent this incident therefore prevented all doubt as to the truth of the report which through a friendly medium came to me from the master of the village inn who had been ordered to entertain the government gentleman in his best manner but above all to be silent concerning such a person being in his house at length he received sir dogbury's commands to accompany his guest at the final interview and after the absolving suffrage of the gentleman honoured with the confidence of ministers answered as follows to the following queries d well landlord and what do you know of the person in question l i see him often pass by with maister my landlord that is the owner of the house and sometimes with the newcomers at holford but i never said a word to him or he to me d but do you not know that he has distributed papers and handbills of a seditious nature among the common people l no your honour i never heard of such a thing d have you not seen this mr coleridge or heard of his haranguing and talking to knots and clusters of the inhabitants what are you grinning at sir l beg your honour's pardon but i was only thinking how they'd have stared at him if what i have heard be true your honour they would not have understood a word he said when our vicar was here dr l the master of the great school and canon of windsor there was a great dinner-party at maister's and one of the farmers that was there told us that he and the doctor talked real hebrew greek at each other for an hour together after dinner d answer the question sir does he ever harangue the people l 
I hope your honour ain't angry with me. I can say no more than I know. I never saw him talking with any one but my landlord and our curate and the strange gentleman. D. Has he not been seen wandering on the hills towards the channel, and along the shore, with books and papers in his hand, taking charts and maps of the country? L. Why, as to that, your honour, I own I have heard. I am sure I would not wish to say ill of anybody, but it is certain that I have heard. D. Speak out, man, don't be afraid. You are doing your duty to your king and government. What have you heard? L. Why, folks do say, your honour, as how that he is a poet, and that he is going to put Quantock and all about here in print, and as they be so much together, I suppose that the strange gentleman has some concern in the business. So ended this formidable inquisition, the latter part of which alone requires explanation, and at the same time entitles the anecdote to a place in my literary life. I had considered it as a defect in the admirable poem of The Task, that the subject, which gives the title to the work, was not and indeed could not be carried on beyond the three or four first pages, and that throughout the poem the connections are frequently awkward, and the transitions abrupt and arbitrary. I sought for a subject that should give equal room and freedom for description, incident, and impassioned reflections on men, nature, and society, yet supply in itself a natural connection to the parts and unity to the whole. Such a subject I conceive myself to have found in a stream, traced from its source in the hills among the yellow-red moss and conical glass-shaped tufts of bent, to the first break or fall, where its drops become audible, and it begins to form a channel, thence to the peat and turf barn, itself built of the same dark squares as it sheltered, to the sheepfold, to the first cultivated plot of ground, to the lonely cottage and its bleak garden, one from the heath, to the hamlet, the villages, the market-town, the manufactories, and the seaport. My walks, therefore, were almost daily on the top of Quantic, and among its sloping combs, with my pencil and memorandum-book in my hand, I was making studies, as the artists call them, and often moulding my thoughts into verse, with the objects and imagery immediately before my senses. Many circumstances, evil and good, intervened to prevent the completion of the poem, which was to have been entitled The Brook. Had I finished the work, it was my purpose, in the heat of the moment, to have dedicated it to our then Committee of Public Safety, as containing the charts and maps with which I was to have supplied the French government in aid of their plans of invasion and these too for a tract of coast that from clevedon to minehead scarcely permits the approach of a fishing-boat all my experience from my first entrance into life to the present hour is in favour of the warning maxim that the man who opposes in toto the political or religious zealots of his age is safer from their obloquy than he who differs from them but in one or two points or perhaps only in degree by that transfer of the feelings of private life into the discussion of public questions which is the queen-bee in the hive of party fanaticism the partisan has more sympathy with an intemperate opposite than with a moderate friend we now enjoy an intermission and long may it continue in addition to far higher and more important merits our present bible societies and other numerous associations for national or charitable objects may serve perhaps to carry off the superfluous activity and fervour of stirring minds in innocent hyperboles and the bustle of management but the poison tree is not dead though the sap may for a season have subsided to its roots at least let us not be lulled into such a notion of our entire security as not to keep watch and ward even on our best feelings i have seen gross intolerance shown in support of toleration sectarian antipathy most obtrusively displayed in the promotion of an undistinguishing comprehension of sex and acts of cruelty i had almost said of treachery committed in furtherance of an object vitally important to the cause of humanity and all this by men too of naturally kind dispositions and exemplary conduct the magic rod of fanaticism is preserved in the very adita of human nature, and needs only the re-exciting warmth of a master hand to bud forth afresh and produce the old fruits, the horror of the peasants' war in Germany, and the direful effects of the Anabaptist tenets, 
which differed only from those of Jacobinism by the substitution of theological for philosophical jargon, struck all Europe for a time with a fright. Yet little more than a century was sufficient to obliterate all effective memory of these events. The same principles, with similar though less dreadful consequences, were again at work, from the imprisonment of the first Charles to the restoration of his son. The fanatic maxim of extirpating fanaticism by persecution produced a civil war. The war ended in the victory of the insurgents, but the temper survived, and Milton had abundant grounds for asserting that Presbyter was but old priest writ large. One good result, thank heaven, of this zealotry was the re-establishment of the church, and now it might have been hoped that the mischievous spirit would have been bound for a season, and a seal set upon him that he should deceive the nation no more. But no, the ball of persecution was taken up with undiminished vigour by the persecuted, the same fanatic principle that, under the solemn oath and covenant, had turned cathedrals into stables, destroyed the rarest trophies of art and ancestral piety, and hunted the brightest ornaments of learning and religion into holes and corners, now marched under episcopal banners, and having first crowded the prisons of England, emptied its whole vial of wrath on the miserable covenanters of Scotland. A merciful providence at length constrained both parties to join against a common enemy. A wise government followed, and the established church became, and now is, not only the brightest example, but our best and only sure bulwark of toleration, the true and indispensable bank against a new inundation of persecuting zeal, esto perpetua. A long interval of quiet succeeded, or rather, the exhaustion had produced a cold fit of the ache, which was symptomatised by indifference among the many, and a tendency to infidelity or scepticism in the educated classes. At length those feelings of disgust and hatred, which for a brief while the multitude had attached to the crimes and absurdities of sectarian and democratic fanaticism, were transferred to the oppressive privileges of the noblesse, and the luxury, intrigues, and favouritism of the continental courts. The same principles, dressed in the ostentatious garb of a fashionable philosophy, once more rose triumphant and effected the French Revolution. And have we not, within the last three or four years, had reason to apprehend that the detestable maxims and correspondent measures of the late French despotism had already bedimmed the public recollections of democratic frenzy, had drawn off to other objects the electric force of the feelings which had massed and upheld those recollections, and that a favourable occurrence of occasions was alone wanting to awaken the thunder and precipitate the lightning? from the opposite quarter of the political heaven. In part from constitutional indolence, which in the very heyday of hope had kept my enthusiasm in check, but still more from the habits and influences of a classical education and academic pursuits, scarcely had a year elapsed from the commencement of my literary and political adventures, before my mind sank into a state of thorough disgust and despondency, both with regard to the disputes and the parties disputant. With more than poetic feeling I exclaimed, The sensual and the dark rebel in vain, slaves by their own compulsion in mad game they break their manacles to wear the name of freedom graven on a heavier chain o liberty with profitless endeavour have i pursued thee many a weary hour but thou nor swell'st the victor's pomp nor ever didst breathe thy soul in forms of human power alike from all higher they praise thee nor prayer nor boastful name delays thee from superstition's harpy minions and factious blasphemies obscene slaves thou speedest on thy cherub pinions the guide of homeless winds and playmate of the waves. End of chapter 10, part 1